trying to control with Kunitz. Back the other way. It's a three on one. Kane moves ahead. He's got Versteen. Toe drag. Fed to the front. All right, what is up? Welcome to the Sportscasters. It is March 4th, 2014. Kind of heard Steven say March 4th. We'll talk more about that later. Got a great show for you today. Pablo Torre. I feel like we made this kid. We molded this kid into a star. Had him on the show back when he was writing articles on SI about running backs from Oklahoma named Dominic Whaley. And then he kind of blew up during the whole insanity thing. Oh, right, yeah. Because he went to, to college in Cambridge, and so did uh, Linsanity. And uh, we had him on two times, like in a month, for that whole thing. And then, next thing you know, he's gone from Asai, and he ends up at ESPN, ESPN the magazine. And we don't read that, I don't think. I can't I remember the last time no. I opened it. He, he tries to talk me into it later. But he also appears on Around the Horn. Uh, almost two, three times a week. And uh, he filled in for Keith Oberman on Oberman's show the other day. So dude's blowing up, and we're glad for him. And he's going to finally be back on the show. First time th- since 2012 sometime. So excited to have Pablo back on the show. Also, I was trying to think of how you put it. I don't think he's a Sabres legend, but he's whatever's right below that. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, there's like Sabres busts, you know, and then there's like Sabres scrubs, and then there's a couple of other things which I don't know the names of, and then there's Legends. He's not a Hashik or a LaFontaine. He's not in the Legends category, but I think he's in the one below that. He's very well liked. I think he's universally liked from Sabres fans. There's not a lot of guys that are like, oh. And he's liked because he was the kind of guy who literally laid down in front of every possible... I mean, he was the Buffalo hockey player. Sure. He played, and his name, which I don't think we said yet, is Jay McKee, and he's going to be nice enough to join us from a vacation in Las Vegas to talk about everything that's gone on with the Sabres this week, which we're going to deal with in three things because it's hasn't exactly been pretty, I don't think you'd say. Maybe effective, depending on how you look at it in some ways, but not pretty and sort of scary about what the history or what the future of the team might hold, at least in my mind. Uh, So we're going to do that. Uh, We're going to do a book club update today, a big book club update. One last time because we missed a month in February. I want to talk about Ed Sherman's book. And then we're going to kick off uh, Jeff Perlman month because his book officially is in stores today. So best of luck to Jeff Perlman, who is on the Dan Patrick show today. Oh, cool. Slightly better spot than here. (laughs) But uh, congratulations to him on that. So we do have a lot to do today. We're going to end with one last thing, and we're going to get things started with three things. Let's play a game. All right. On the count of three. One. All righty. I'll kick it off. Two. The oil patterns on a PBA lane are very, very difficult. Three. I might be able to beat Jamarcus Russell at quarterback. <laughs> did we just become best friends? Yep. I did it. Did what? I climbed this mountain. Huh. Well, I save hundreds on my car insurance with Geico. Oh. 
Geico. 15 minutes could save you. I, I don't know what happened there. <laughs> the uh, highlight that we played off the show. Oh, we're still just, running. It just started playing a Geico commercial. I had muted the highlight. Interesting. But then when the highlight apparently ended, it unmuted itself so that everyone could hear the commercial. <laughs> oh, it, it almost sounded like that intro was somehow slower, too. But That was funny. Anyway, <laughs> uh, our first thing this week, we talked about it. It's a little local, so if you don't want to hear about the Sabres, skip maybe the next five minutes. But the Buffalo Sabres uh, had a busy weekend. They traded away a guy who I think would maybe fall into that Legends category and Ryan Miller. Absolutely. A guy that maybe had he spent longer here, he was definitely a fan favorite for in his time here in Steve Ott. And uh, they got a couple guys that they don't expect to be here long. And draft guys picks are gonna trade. And, right, yeah, guys are probably going to try Stuart to flip. And, and some draft picks. Then the next day, seemingly, I know this is brewing in the background, I guess, since before this, and supposedly are unrelated, but Pat LaFontaine resigns. And now Ted Nolan is very noncommittal about uh, an extension they've offered him, a three-year coaching extension to take the interim tag off and give him the full-time job. But uh, the Miller thing I think we saw coming. I was excited when I saw the trade. I think I said something on Twitter along the lines of, like after the initial excitement of the deal wore off, I was a little bit sad that Miller wasn't going to be there. He was just he's been there twelve years, you know. I, and I know it's they they really never won. I mean, they never won the ultimate prize with him, but still, it was a little bit sad. I mean, it was a necessary evil, I suppose, to have to trade a guy that's pretty well liked, but uh, still we, gonna be weird going forward without him on the team. It was real funny how it happened too. We were Tammy and I were driving, Miss Caster and I were driving to awake. Right around the 6 o'clock hour, and at that time, the talk was still, this is going to be Miller's last home game. Right, yeah. The the fans here are smart. Let's hope for a really cool Ryan Miller moment at some point in the end. There was talk that maybe they would pull him in the last couple of minutes Just of the game. Just to give him that send-off. So he could get a send-off. Yeah. And then we go into a wake, and by the time we come out, the first period of the hockey game is over, and... Right away, the radio guy's like, all right, we're going to go to downtown for press conference. Right. And there's this guy talking about being traded, and I'm like, well, that's not Ryan Miller. And I, I didn't immediately recognize Steve Ott's voice. And Steve Ott's talking about being traded, and then he's like, and, you know, going with Ryan. Yeah, and if you're not. And I'm like, did they really trade Steve Ott and Ryan Miller to one team? Yeah, so that went Better down. Better than one hell of a haul. And, uh,. I happened to be watching the game because it was Ryan Miller's last game, or so I thought. I, And leading up to this, it was weird enough as it is that they would even play him because they had played him uh, the home game before. First game back. And or, then right, no, him the that, right then they played Emroth. Right. So you thought Miller was done. Why would they play him? I've actually heard some suggestion that maybe they were trying to force another team's hand by like threatening to put him in the lineup again and risk him getting hurt or whatever, but... I, I don't know. It was strange that they were even going to play him, but maybe it was a respect thing, like give him his last home game. But uh, I believe the an com- hour before the game. The company line on that was that Ted Nolan wasn't told he was traded, so he was just fielding the best team. Okay. I mean, that's sure. maybe, maybe not. Right, and know. it does sound like Ted Nolan is uh, – it sounded like when Lindy was here with Darcy that they were very much together on the trades. 
Nolan sounds like a type of guy that's like, no, I'm a coach. You know, you do the GM stuff. I'm going to be a coach. So he probably had some idea and maybe some input on players they'd maybe want to get back, but he seemed to have no idea that they were going to be traded that night because otherwise I'm, I'm assuming they would have made some personnel changes. They, It was funny watching the game live because they gave the scratches and it was like John Scott who was like headed up to the press box and I don't remember anybody else, but they had to then unscratch John Scott to play for Steve Ott and they actually signed a kid or guy. Who works for the Harbor Center. Yeah, who works for the Harbor Center, played, played high, high school, school hockey. hockey. In Lancaster. Yeah, still plays like men's league hockey, so he had his goalie stuff in the car. What a cool story. I've heard stories about that from other teams and other guys. And I believe St. Louis had to do something similar because they traded Halak. Oh, I okay. they also had to uh, scramble. There was a story a little while back of a guy that almost got in the game because their starting goalie was sick or something like that, but they made their AHL guy made it there just in time. But this this – uh, whatever band-aid guy they had hired off the off the street actually took like pregame warm-ups to like he was almost in the game and I guess he was getting lit up in warm-ups and whatever and he didn't get into the NHL game lucky probably for Thank him and God. the team but uh <laughs> but uh it was close so that was kind of a cool story coming from all of it but the LaFontaine thing is all anyone's really talking about in Buffalo now I'm sure you talked to Jay McKee about it uh it, it's weird and if it's a power struggle between LaFontaine and Murray, it's incredibly weird because LaFontaine hired Murray. Right. So that's possibility A. Possibility B is that this was maybe why they brought him in. Come in, get some stability, hire yeah, but a GM and bow out. But you'd think if that was the case, they'd, they'd say, say that. It. Right. And they haven't. Yeah. That, and the other thing that I keep going back to, and I know people will say, especially the Buffalo News folks, uh, Mike Harrington, who's a good reporter, but he goes out of his way, it seems like, to just bash the Sabres at every turn. They all hate everything this, over there. This doesn't look good for the Sabres for sure, but they kind of just dismiss the fact that LaFontaine did this almost exact same thing in uh, in the, the, the Islanders organization. Yep. So... I don't know what it is. And if, I it, think if it's the, a power struggle, I think the right guy is still there. The I mean, best, by the trade. The best theory that I've heard is that Nolan and LaFontaine were more on my side, I think, between me and you, who believe that this rebuild can be done a little bit quicker. And I think Murray is sort of in it for the slower rebuild. Sure. And I'm not sure which one of them is right. I'm not going to say either one is wrong, but that might be what it is. It would be really interesting this time along if Ted Nolan was the one who told the Sabres to take their extension and shove it, <laughs> as opposed to last time when they basically gave him a one-year one year, extension yeah, yeah. and told him to shove it in so many words. So Yeah, what will be interesting, interesting after, times. after tomorrow, and like you said, about we probably won't know this till July, how fast Tim Murray thinks the rebuild should take, but... If they end up trading away um, Molson and Erhoff's name's been out there, these are the guys with the bigger salaries left on the team. They are going to have to meet the salary floor in right. the offseason. A lot of money to spend, and hopefully people – I've always – and Jay McKee and I talk about this. I've always totally dismissed the idea that hockey players don't want to come here yeah, like, because it's Buffalo. But hockey players might not want to come here because the organization appears to be in disarray. So hopefully yeah. they could get that sorted out before free agency. Absolutely. Um, 
But that's that. We'll see how it plays out. Yeah, our second thing combined this week is on the same lines. The NHL trade deadline is tomorrow at, I believe, 4 p.m. Eastern. Sounds about right. So we'll have someone, hopefully Puck Daddy, in next week to talk about everything that goes down tomorrow. Weirdly enough, a lot of stuff has gone down today, which yes. is not normally the case. And some names, I guess, have been eh, not really anyone real big. But uh, Luongo is a pretty big one. Yeah, Luongo is the big one, and that's a that's a – it's a crazy one. Uh, I don't know what Florida's doing. I asked you, and you seem not know what the idea is either. Part of having a team that's in the basement for me is I haven't really looked at the, the NHL Florida, standings. Florida's not making the playoffs, if that's your question. They're not even close to the playoffs. No. I don't get this move at all, then. They trade away a kid that's supposedly their goalie of the future to a guy that makes – in the $5 million range, and he's going to be making that until like 2020-something. The only team Florida's ahead of in the Eastern Conference is, is Buffalo. Buffalo. Wow. So they're not making the playoffs. So I don't know. But Roberto Luongo returns to Florida. And you know what? The Sabres traded for Halak, and everyone's like, maybe why? But, you know, sometimes... But Halak's a UFA. Sometimes you trade for a guy to flip a guy. Yeah, I think... I, so, well, okay. If maybe, they're going to try to move maybe. Luongo, that's... That's one thing, but that contract is going to make it almost impossible to move him. I don't know if they're trying to hit the salary floor for the next. I just know if I'm a Florida Panthers fan, I'm pissed. This is one of those moves that sometimes I watch a football game and people will talk about uh, analytics and all that stuff. And once in a while, you'll see a, a the easiest way to judge whether or not you think something's right or wrong is like if me as the guy cheering for the opposition team is excited. Like if a guy kicks a field goal late in the game against my team and that makes me feel better than him going for it on fourth and one, then it was probably the wrong call. This is one of those moves that if I were in Florida, I just picked up salary for the next seven years or so and got a guy that I don't even know how good he is. But a couple other things that went down. Dustin Penner is now a capital just for a draft pick there. Yeah, it was pretty cheap too. Is he not that good? He's Good for a fourth-round pick. I think they can use him. Yeah, that's... Uh, Ilya Brzgalov, who would fall into the not-that-good category, is in Minnesota, although he'll give them some stability in the backup if anything were to happen Harding. Only cost them a fourth-round pick. Uh, really interesting name, Brandon Peary. He's a guy who played college hockey at RPI. He was one of the guys that coach the coach of RPI promised Anthony would be line mates with. His freshman year, uh, as, along with Jerry D'Amigo. Yeah, I remember the name D'Amigo. He had and, a real big uh, junior tournament or something. Neither of those guys would have played a second with Anthony. They both left uh, before Anthony would have oh, gotten really? there. So, a bunch of bullshit from a guy who's full of bullshit named Seth Thappert, who coaches <laughs> RPI. <laughs> but uh, he got moved to uh, to Florida, which is probably good for his career because if there's one thing Chicago has, it's a lot of forwards. Right, uh, so probably a better chance for him to uh, to play and develop his career. But we'll have to see uh, see tomorrow what what it brings, and we'll uh, certainly talk about it next week. And hopefully, Puck Daddy will have some time. We can talk about how everything went down. Yeah, I love the trade deadline. The one last thing I'll add about the trade deadline is uh, I'm not the biggest Twitter user. Usually, I'll just use it, kind of read it, maybe retweet some stuff, reply to some stuff, whatever. I don't do a lot on there, but uh, it's absolutely the best. On trade deadline day. If you're a hockey fan, like Twitter is the greatest place to be. You get to break things to your friends on Facebook that aren't on Twitter. So uh, it's unbel- it's awesome. All right, I'll go third just to break up the hockey a little bit. Fox announced just the other day Harold Reynolds and two-time 
sportscasters guest Tom Verducci are going to replace Tim McCarver and be on the number one baseball team with Joe Buck. Our buddy Kenny Albert is still going to be on the second team. Uh, I like Verducci a lot. Reynolds is okay. But to me, this just, John Smoltz was just so obvious. Oh, right, yeah. You know, and I guess I'm not a television executive, so maybe I'm wrong. But to me, that was such an obvious move. Instead, we go from a long-time two-man booth to now a three-man booth. Verducci doesn't have a ton of experience in the booth. A lot of the TV work he's done has been on the field, kind of as a somewhat sideline reporter type thing, although he has called games for TBS. Uh, but I like Verducci, and I do like Reynolds, so I'm willing to give it a chance. But I am disappointed that it wasn't John Smoltz. Absolutely. Um, my last thing, going back to the NHL, and I think we touched on this before, and I think it kind of came to fruition, but the NHL played its last two outdoor games, and if you're not a huge think, NHL fan... I think you, that's six this year. Yeah, if you're not a big NHL fan, you probably missed it. Uh, I happened to be flipping through the channels and just saw a hockey game on, so I turned it on and realized, oh, that's an outdoor game. Um, I thought the ice looked nice, <laughs> I guess. But it was like a hot outdoor game, but in a football stadium that seems like it was mostly covered. So You should have seen the snow in Chicago for Chicago and Pittsburgh. I mean, they were coming out to shovel the entire ice probably every six or seven minutes of play, and they were taking a half an inch of snow off the ice every time. Oh, yeah. I, I mean, mean, that's kind of how it was in Buffalo, and it was cool, but at that time it was the only game. It was they're New killing Year's it. Day. Yeah, they're it, killing it. I I definitely think it's cool, and if it came to excuse me, if it came to Buffalo again, I'd probably go. But I don't know how many times. You know what I mean? Uh, it's not six that a year. fun to be there as a spectator. <laughs> Uh, it's cold and it gets progressively cold. And when the ice is bad or the weather's bad, the game drags and drags. I remember the first period of the Sabres and Penguins game being all in, plenty warm enough, having right. fun, being there. The third period, there was a hole in the ice they had to keep fixing and That's fixing. Right. That's the right. The bony kept coming up. Then it went to overtime, then a shootout. And next thing you know, it's a three plus hour hockey game and you can't feel your toes anymore. Yep. And I think it's a great thing for the NHL, and they should do it on New Year's Day every year, one time, but that's enough. It's yep. enough. Yep, uh, like you said, the last two games, if I hadn't been flipping through, uh, would have been totally anonymous. I would have forgot all about them. It would have been afterthought. All right, we're going to take a break and come back with uh, Pablo Torre. Well, they know that they got to be sure. If, they, if they're going to have any opportunity to freeze a puck, freeze it. If they're going to have a chance to deflect the puck in the corner, they got to do it. Here's a chance, and a score! Yale has done it! Our next guest is from New York City and went to college in Cambridge, Massachusetts. In 2007, he was honored for his work by the Associated Collegiate Press and the American Society of Newspaper Editors for writing the Sports Story of the Year. After college, he was hired by Sports Illustrated to be a writer and reporter for the magazine and SI.com. After leaving Sports Illustrated, he was hired by ESPN, where he's a senior writer for ESPN the magazine and a regular on Around the Horn. He is making his fourth appearance on the Sportscasters today. A warm welcome to the very talented Pablo Torre. What's going on, Pablo? What's going on, man? Sorry it took so long for me to get back, but I told you that once 
my insanely busy schedule of an important person cleared up, I would make it back. But in all seriousness, thank you for having me. I appreciate it. You know, it's funny how f- like our first, the first time we had you on was when you wrote a really nice piece about Dominic Whaley. Right, right, man. That seems so. That seems so long ago. I remember that. And, I wonder and, where he is. Yeah, no, that's a that's, that's a great question. I hear from his dad sometimes. Actually, I mean that that just reminds me that I actually need to return a message from him. Um, but yeah, I mean that was so long ago now, and obviously since then I changed jobs. I have a different apartment. I'm on a landline now, which seems counterintuitive. I seem to have moved back in time, but that's the that's the price of living in an ancient Brooklyn building is that I'm actually on a landline. So, yeah, my entire life has been turned upside down, to paraphrase the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air theme song. Well, I have a lot of questions about that because oftentimes we're most interested in, on this show, it's something that makes us somewhat unique. So I have often interested in the process that you guys go through, and I wonder... Okay, first of all, I'm going to be completely honest. I I don't read the magazine, the ESPN, the magazine. What mm-hmm. do you have any idea why it has to be so big? Why it can't be the regular <laughs> size? Is there, does so look, does that appeal to people? Yeah, yeah. Look, I'm an S- I was an SI lifer. I mean, I started as a fact checker. You know, was a subscriber to the magazine. You know, grew up with it. Saw it in doctors' offices and all that. Um, ESPN, the magazine. Uh, which I will now uh, give you or force a subscription upon you now that you say that. Okay. Uh, but the, 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 the reason why it's that size, according to the good people who employ me, is that they wanted to, number one, I guess, be different in some way. Obviously, that means that when it gets to your mailbox, it may be crumpled or torn should your mailbox not be the right size. But if it is the right size, you get sort of a more of a showcase for photography and layout. Um, that's kind of the thinking. I do not make these decisions. That's far above my pay grade. I will say, as a person, again, who is receiving money from, <laughs> from Walt Disney, that I kind of like it. I do in a weird way. Um, so that's my opinion, but, but I think the idea is we want to differentiate ourselves, showcase graphics, and design a little bit more than the standard, uh, you know, eight by ten piece of paper printout kind of size. Now, as a writer, would you prefer that the focus was on writing as opposed to graphics mm. and design? Well, here's the thing. So, you see in the magazine, one of the reasons why I came over there, and these are all you know good questions to ask. Um, one of the reasons I came over there is because they were switching over. You know, number one, Chad Millman is now the editor in chief of the magazine. He's um, great. So he's a big, fantastic. Yeah, I mean, he's really great. Smart guy who yep. does a billion things. Former SI guy himself, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, but anyway, so they he he took over the magazine, and right now, I mean, when I joined in October of 2012, the focus of the magazine has gone to these theme issues, which are outside of the news cycle. And so writing and long form and all that stuff is actually exactly what the emphasis of the magazine is now. And I mean, I should note also that all the stories in the magazine get posted on ESPN.com, which benefits from the huge fire hose of traffic, of course, uh, that accrues to the ESPN website. But the magazine itself and why I love it, and I genuinely say that, is because they're theme issues, they're bi-weekly, and they're not beholden to the news cycle, which means that they can go to 
offbeat kind of paths to do stories, long-form stories particularly, and that's kind of the focus, is to be a smarter magazine, to be more substantive, to address topics that might warrant a magazine feature that you wouldn't get out of the normal, you know, seven days a week news cycle. So that frees our magazine up from having to cover the big game of a given week, for having to put that on the cover of the, of the magazine, for having to dispatch somebody to do that, because number one, the, the website will do that. And the metabolism of the website is probably more appropriate for that at this point. But the magazine gets to then go do at times weirder stuff or at times in-depth stuff. For example, we just did the analytics issue. I did a story on Paul George for that, for that issue. Um, and we got to do basically an entire issue structured around the evolution and the themes associated with analytics, um, which means we can go in a bunch of different directions. The next issue coming out, which I have a piece in, is, is the conspiracy issue. And I wrote about why the NBA is kind of the hotbed of conspiracy theories in pro sports. And you get to sort of then attack all of these different little angles. So the writing actually ends up being the focus and, and the design and the packaging is obviously super important to what a magazine should be, in my opinion. It's a print product, how do you differentiate yourself from any number of websites. So to me, what we're doing and trying to do well and still striving to do, we haven't certainly achieved that level of mythic platonic magazine print perfection, is to combine both, give you something that a website or a seven-day-a-week standard news cycle magazine could give you, and that goes to design and that goes to sort of the long-form aspects of it. Now, the interesting thing about that is maybe three or four years ago, that might not have been a great answer, but it seems like in the last eight months, maybe a little less than that, long form is like all the rage. You know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. everyone wants to do long form stuff. We were just talking to uh, Matt Crossman, who used to write for the Sporting News, which has gone the way of the right. Dodo Bird. And he does a bunch of different things now. And he says, you know, anytime someone reaches out to him, he's more of a freelance, it's always about the long form stuff. It seems like that's kind of a new... Uh, a new way to to get people. People want to read long form suddenly. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's interesting the evolution of that because I think in magazine journalism generally there is certainly a a, a kind of trendiness to long form. And I know the guys who run long form uh, org, you know, Twitter account is at long form. Right. Um, but I, but those guys do it for all you know all all magazines and they do a good job. Um, and there's a certain trendiness to it. I mean, part of that could be. It could be something to monitor and make sure we just don't do long form for long form's sake. By no means do I think that a good story needs to be minimum, what, like 3,000, 3,500 words or or more. You know, I I think that journalism could come in any number of good story lengths. The best stories need not be long by, by definition. But I think that there is kind of this understanding that given what, the internet can provide, given what uh, readers' habits are now, that long form is sustainable. And, and that's a way to kind of establish your, your quote-unquote brand, and I hate using that word in any way that's not ironic, but I will use it sincerely here, that it, it's good to be associated with, with ambitious, serious, smart journalism. And, and, and long form is often the easiest you know, or not the easiest, but the most obvious way to indulge that ambition. So to me, 
Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a net positive by all means. It's definitely a net positive. And, and, but, but by no means do I think that you know, a great column or a great 1,000-word or 1,500-word story, uh, I, I don't think that those have been eclipsed. I just think that long form, especially for what ESPN the magazine does, makes sense because we're trying to give you, here's a printed product that we can throw at you and you hold on to and you, and you page through. You, know, you want to sit with it to marinate in it in some extent. So, so that sort of makes sense given the actual physical design of the thing. I have kind of a follow-up, but I need another piece of information first, and that is I know you said your articles appear on ESPN.com. Can you write specifically for ESPN.com? Like I guess what I yeah, mean so, – Yeah, okay. Go ahead. Yeah, yeah no, that, that's a good question as well. Uh, so I write – so my title because, part, again, part of the – I think the – I guess you can call it reorganization of ESPN the magazine, is that it was all brought under the umbrella of Bristol. So it was, used to be based out of Manhattan. And I had no association with ESPN the magazine when that was the case. But they moved a couple of years ago back to Bristol. They, they changed staff. There was a lot of turnover. Chad came in. But part of it was because they wanted it all to be in-house. They wanted there to be this kind of coherent, you know, I'm going to use another corporate terrible buzzword, but synergy, I guess, between the magazine and the website. We're all under this corporate bureaucratic umbrella. Why aren't we coordinated better? Why aren't we in touch with each other more in daily meetings? And so those two things, the magazine and the website, were sort of joined. Um, the magazine has its own office, its own building, Building Zero over in Bristol, which I've visited a couple times, and it's a, it's a very nice place with lovely people in it. Um, and the, web, the website has its own quarters there, but the uh, the idea is a web and magazine writer should be interchangeable. That there's no reason to build these, you know, uh, we, we should be building semi-permeable walls between content divisions because the corporation, the business, the magazine or the website is better when there's you know when there's mutual sharing of resources. And so, for example, I covered. Um, I went to and I did a story. Went to Mexico to do a story on uh, Canelo Alvarez before the Canelo Floyd Mayweather fight. And then, for example, they sent me. That was ahead of the fight. Then they sent me to Vegas to cover the fight and write a column off of it. And that was just for ESPN.com. So, by all means, the majority of my assignments are for the magazine. That's where I'm needed most. That's where I think my skill sets probably to some extent make sense the most. But I do do assignments on an ad hoc basis for ESPN.com. I'm technically senior writer for both. And, for example, again, I'll go to the World Cup, actually, this summer, which is an entirely other conversation we can have. But I'll go to the World Cup and be writing, I believe, exclusively for ESPN.com, going to games, traveling Brazil for various, you know, to various cities for a month, and that'll all be at ESPN.com. So there is this kind of content and personnel sharing uh, spirit that's going on. So if Linsanity happens tomorrow, there's no reason you can't do what you did for SI exactly. for ESPN.com, right? Yeah, and not only that. I mean, one of the cool things that can be at times you know, overwhelming is that, it's, yeah, you'll, you'll do something theoretically for a story like that. If it's Linsanity in February 2012 being transplanted in you know, 2014, I would do this stuff for the web, undoubtedly. Maybe I'd do an in-depth piece for the magazine, depending on what part of that bi-weekly cycle it is, the first or second week. Um, and then I'd probably go do something for SportsCenter or for another show and, and do a multi-platform thing, do a video on-camera thing somehow for another program should the news story warrant that. So yeah, I mean, it's a whole ecosystem of stuff 
which by all means I'm still getting my feet wet in and getting accustomed to. Well, that brings us to a whole other set of questions, being that when you left SI for ESPN, did you, did, you, did you envision having as big of a role as you've had on TV? Did you think, wow, I might be a regular on Around the Horn and mm-hmm. uh, fill in for Keith Oberman? Was that an ambition of yours? Is that something that was a big part in this, or is this something that just kind mm-hmm. of evolved as part of working for the ESPN empire? Yeah, that's a great question, and that's that's a question that I kind of asked myself. I mean, when I was contemplating whether to leave and what the pros and cons were, you know, I was thinking, okay, I'm a writer. I've only really been paid to write. You know, at SI, I did a bunch of, I happened to do a bunch of TV stuff. One of the things that was a nice byproduct of being in Midtown Manhattan on 50th Street and 6th Avenue, where Sports Illustrated and Time Inc. is located, is that it's really centrally position between all of these different cable news networks. And so inevitably, someone would need somebody to basically just talk about whatever sports topic happened to penetrate the daily cable news cycle. And so I think the first TV thing I did was actually, uh, it's funny to remember this now, given that I just guest hosted Roberman, but I did uh, a, a thing on Michael Phelps. I had a conversation about Michael Phelps in 2008 during the Summer Olympics in Beijing with Bill O'Reilly. And that, I think, was my first TV appearance. Um, and it was, obviously, none of those things are paid. Uh, it was because everybody who actually knew stuff about the Olympics and swimming was in Beijing for Sports Illustrated. And so I think I was like the right. only person left who was paying attention and could conceivably do... I don't even know how I was chosen. I think they just needed a body to put in front of him because they wanted SI to be represented. I was so thrilled to do it. And then I just ended up doing from there, like little spots here and there. And so getting fast forwarding now to, to leaving sports illustrated, I was a writer who had had some TV experience on an unpaid basis with these sort of cable news hits, um, some other stuff. And, and to me, I wanted, I knew that I wanted to have a kind of multi-platform kind of present. So that was my ambition, at least, is that I knew I could sense just given the way that the industry of the, of media, really, sports media, not even just sports media, but media generally, that having familiarity, the ability to do, whether it's radio or podcasting or video or TV, I, I, I thought that I enjoyed it and that I could be decent at it and that that would make sense from a longer-term career perspective. Because at the end of the day, I really liked it um, when it was done well. So I wanted to see about that. But my conversations with ESPN the magazine and ESPN.com were entirely about writing. I mean, they reached out to me, uh, I believe, during the final four uh, of 2012. I was in New Orleans. I remember when I got an email um, from Scott Burden, the executive editor at ESPN the magazine. And it was all about writing. I mean, that's sort of what we engaged in. And then I kind of ended up expressing that I wanted to do other stuff. And I ended up meeting, when you go interview with ESPN, you go to Bristol, and you have a ton of meetings, like you have an entire day scheduled. Some people who, who you know, who you don't know, and vice versa. And But you get to meet people who make decisions. And so you meet a lot of people, producers from the studio side, from the TV side, from the radio side, certainly from the print and web side, uh, up and down the hierarchy. And so I think just by that, you know, they do that because they want to sort of let you meet people who are responsible for putting people on television. And so I think it started there. And, uh, and but, but, but no, I mean, like, I had no, I don't think, Around the Horn was not something that they told me I would be on. Um, 
and certainly guest hosting Overman a year or two in the future or a year and a half in the future is not something that they told me about. Um, I had no, I had no, uh, you know, knowledge of what I would be doing TV wise. Uh, but I remember, I think it was October that first, that first month, uh, you know, around the horn, uh, our coordinating producer, uh, Aaron Solomon emailed me and Tony Reale, who had been following me on Twitter, you know, and we had sort of become internet, uh, you know, I don't even know if we were really communicating, but he thought we followed each other and, and he reached out to me and, and had some super encouraging words before my first show. And it was a test show. I mean, it was one of those things where you, they email you, you say, can you do this date? We'd love to see how you do. And then I did the show. I was incredibly nervous and terrified. And I made like a Mighty Ducks reference <laughs> or two or three or four. And, uh, and they invited me back. And so you just sort of keep going with it until they tell you to stop, uh, you know, showing up or they stop sending you the scheduling emails. So that's how all that happened. It really came after the fact, uh, after me, after I realized, you know, I would like to go to ESPN because of the writing opportunities and then the other opportunities that can that can sort of present themselves. I want to ask you a few questions about Around the Horn because I can remember exactly yeah. when Around the Horn started. And I, <laughs> I, I want to say that I don't think I've ever read so many miserable reviews for a show. I mean – Oh my God! These writers are such blowhards, and this is the worst thing ever right. invented. And here we are, however many years later, and the show is still there every day, five o'clock. And I don't know if it's if if initially if it was a Max Kellerman thing, switching over to Reality is what made the show better. I, I don't really know because I kind of like both, so I don't know that it's that. Mm-hmm. But what do you think it is about this show that has turned it from? being just the villain of sports television, something that ESPN <laughs> just needed to abort as quickly as possible to being this very, very long running successful show partnered up with PTI, which is maybe one of the most successful ideas in ESPN history. Right, 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 right. So I should caveat everything that I'm about to say by, by noting that I'm probably the least qualified person on the show to opine about this because I am the youngest tenured person there uh, by age at the very least, uh, Frank Isola, who just joined the show. Uh, I have a little bit of a head start on, uh, in terms of chronological joining of the show, but I have thoughts on this because I, I, like you as a consumer, I remember when the show erupted, I remember yelling at, you know, like Jay Mariotti and, 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 you know, being <laughs> and, 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 and sort of being mystified as to who this person was and why he was, opinionated and angry all the time and all that sort of thing. I'm very much from the same generation of people who watched it and was momentarily confused by it or alternately, you know, became addicted to it uh, and sort of waxed and waned in terms of my own viewing habits. Um, But this is what I can tell you is, I mean, first off, I I think Max Kellerman is one of the smartest people working in sports media. So, but I never worked with him. I know him on a, a kind of professional colleague level, he's an ESPN as well, and, and he's a big boxing fan. We've talked about boxing a little bit. Yeah, I don't um, think it was his fault. I like Max. Yeah, no, yeah. I mean, I think he's just a different, I mean, I think he and Tony are very different uh, personalities, um, as obviously similar as they may be in their ability to be excellent hosts, um, and hosting as the older men sort of thing taught me. It's this intensely, intensely difficult job that is, you know, it, it, the DNA required for that job is different from from really any other television job. 
um, just as a matter of category, um, different from correspondent or guest, certainly, or, or producer even, the host is, is this, it's a, it's a performative role that is, that requires so much. Um, but anyway, so my understanding is that at some point when Max left and the original creator of Around the Horn, Bill Wolf, left, um, Eric Rideholm, who is the executive producer of Around the Horn now and PTI and, and DLHQ, uh, or highly questionable as it's called now, um, he who created PTI, um, he took it over and, and he had his own sensibility. And Eric has become, you know, one of my better friends uh, in, 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 in professional life and in normal life. He comes through New York a lot and we hang out and he's one of the smartest, most forward thinking guys. I mean, just a brilliant television mind and otherwise just a guy who has a, has a sense of what works on TV and what doesn't and just thoughts about the media and all other sort of industries. He also like was super involved. I believe he, he might've co-founded the Motley Fool, this, you know, financial news and satire site, um, really well rounded guy, but his sensibility was, I've got a couple of things, you know, a couple of ambitions sort of set in. Um, and, and some of this, even in the last several years was around the horn, it, you know, it benefited from the five o'clock uh, PTI five sorry the five to six happy hour kind of PTI block. Um, but I think it also aspired to be more than just screaming at people. You know, I, I think one of the things that I've appreciated on around the horn. And I'll speak here specifically to my time in the last you know since October of 2012. The screaming that has been so so long the 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 scarlet letter of around the horn really is not there in the way that it is imagined, um, at least not anymore since I've been there. Um, certainly, for example, you have some of the characters that you remember. I mean, Woody Page is everybody's, you know, you know uh, often unhinged, often really funny uncle. I mean, his character, who he is, I mean, all that's real. Um, that is who Woody is, and we want Woody to be that way, I think. But that doesn't mean there can't be room for other personality types. And so, for example, like Bomani Jones, who is one of the quickest, you know, at times most acerbic, most opinionated guys out there is, is having helped make around the horn what it is. He's a guy who's super smart, who, who won't tolerate BS. Um, getting a guy like that on the show helped. Um, getting some younger blood in there, Michael Smith, Jamel Howell, Izzy, Israel Gutierrez, um, bringing some more variety and personality. J.A., I mean, yeah. J.A.'s in there for yeah. a while, but he's right. another super smart guy with actual recording chops, Jackie McMullen, Bob Ryan. I mean, if you go down the list, Tim Kalishaw, <clears throat> I can go on, but these are all like people with actual column and reporting chops. And so to encourage a smarter, faster conversation is something that Tony Reale, I think, has specifically tried to encourage, that Aaron Solomon has tried to encourage, that we realize, wait a minute, a lot of our strengths of the people who are on the show is, are that they can be smart and quick and, and have fun. I mean, and fun in a genuine way. We really enjoy each other. So I think getting that all under the auspices of here's a point scoring system, which is inherently silly, but as long as we're self-aware about the silliness, but manage to also take it seriously enough to the point where we're not defrauding viewers, you know, because we actually do care about the points. So having that. So you're, you're saying that those a, results are device. legit. You're, you're, you're gonna... Oh my God! Okay. Yeah. So you're not the first person to ask me this. Okay. And and it, it's it's certainly an understandable question, but right. it's the sort of find it hard to around the horn. Right. Yeah. No. Look, if the point system on around the horn was rigged or fixed, or the more specifically, if the outcomes were predetermined, then I would save so much time in my life preparing for the show. 
And maybe this is all an elaborate punking of me. And everybody else knows the outcome that I know. So I'm inclined to think that at this point, uh, I've seen enough behind the scenes uh, machinations to understand that people are actually competitive about this stuff. I mean, competitive within reason in the sense that we all understand that, that the point scoring system is inherently arbitrary and that's the idea. But we all care about it. We do. And, and, uh, and the idea that it is somehow rigged I think, uh, you know, that, that would save us all so much time in terms of preparation or time spent caring emotionally, uh, if that were true. Yeah, I, I guess, you know, I just always figured there's no way they're making all four of these guys prepare for that last segment. And then, <laughs> you know, I know that's. But they are. That's the thing. I mean, that's the thing. That's why I was so nervous about the show. I was so terrified, and why I was really terrified for a while is because I was like, man, I, I need to prepare ten topics. This is ten topics, and again, the degree to which you prepare can hinge on the degree to which you've been already comfortable with that topic. So certainly, if you're if you're a guy who's been a columnist for decades and you've dealt with topics like this, or you have information off the top of your head and all of that, it's a different story maybe, depending on what you have in mind for how you want to present your answers to the questions. But for someone like me, who has the least institutional memory of anybody, who has the least credibility publicly, arguably, of anybody of all these established names from newspapers and, and journalism generally, you know, to me, yeah, I, I, I spend a ton of time. Um, I spend a ton of time preparing for it, which is... And again, we get compensated for it. It's not like it's 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 a it's a bad deal at all, but it is it is work, definitely. Well, like you said, you prepare for ten topics. I don't know how many we've gone through, but we've already done twenty seven minutes. The sportscasters are here with Pablo Torre. <laughs> you can find him on Twitter, he's at Pablo Torre. I can't keep him all day, but I do have a really funny story I wanna tell you. All right. So Yeah, maybe. So I went to the Yale Harvard hockey game at Madison Square Garden over uh over New Year's, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, Harvard did play a good game. They lost, I think, five to one. But their goalie let them down a little bit. It, it was a closer game than that. So I'll say that off the top. Okay. Yeah. So in between the second period was the period that fell apart for Harvard. So I think it's maybe four to nothing going into the third period. And in between the second and third period, I take a bathroom break. And I go <laughs> into the bathroom and I notice that. Well, first of all. You got to get your boys together because the crowd was probably about 80-20 Yale to Harvard. I don't know if that's a New York thing or why it was like that, but (laughs) maybe it was a national championship thing. I'm not sure, but it was a hugely dominated Yale crowd. So I get into the bathroom. I get into the bathroom, and it's pretty much all blue, and then one poor guy in there in the uh, in the Harvard shirt, you know, and. I mean, mm-hmm. this isn't, you know, veteran stadium here, but there's a little bit of uh, ribbing going on to this guy, you know? Mm-hmm. And it's like, it's good-natured, you know, hockey smack. Like, you know, yeah, we won the national championship, you know. You guys haven't won one since 1989. Uh, you know, you guys stink. This kind of stuff, right? So the guy's comeback, okay, the guy's getting killed, and he stops mid-urination, Turns to the hecklers and says, yeah, but who's got a bigger endowment? <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> was this accompanied? Wait, did he turn around, like, all the way? Well, he turned, you know, just enough to protect himself, I suppose. Okay, because there's a... Cause that, I mean, there's... there's 
Because <laughs> there are there are several levels to that joke, one of which is incredibly explicit, right? Uh, and something of a double or triple entendre. And then there's a general, yes, the, the <laughs> Ivy League. I dab it smack talk. Yeah, he came back <laughs> oh, with God. endowment smack, and and that's you know, that's you gotta. Get, I mean, look, at some point, I will say that. At your most desperate times, I don't know if the right move is to ever cite the the endowment fund as managed by a variety. I mean, like, our bankers are better than yours? Is that kind of the... The more I thought about it, it's like, you know, it wasn't Harvard playing, I don't know, State College of Ohio. Well, that's a bad example because they probably have a decent endowment. State College of Iowa or something. I mean, Yale's endowment is several, several billion as well. I mean, I, I think I no, love. I mean, it, 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 in I think, some way, I think Harvard has no, a six I, billion more. Six billion more. I think I. Yeah, said. no, I think yeah. in some way it's uh, in some way maybe you know maybe uh, maybe a, a terrible Harvard fan has the only recourse, the only time when he can he can cite that you know is is. It's <laughs> like two years then. Maybe that. Maybe that's the uh, the empowering effect of being yelled at by Yale by Yaleys at a urinal. Um, yeah, I'm sorry by the way that we didn't get to work that in on the show on around the horn. Um, I, <laughs> I was hoping we get we get explicit Harvard Yale smack talk going, but uh, but but again, just to 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 put a bow on on the show, um, to bring it all back. I mean, one of the things I love is is the idea to have these random shout outs at the end of the show if you win. And I regret not winning that week, otherwise it would have been it would have given you DAP, you and your bro DAP for, for Yale and the Yale hockey entourage, which has taken over the United States of America. Um but uh but it's also just to, you know, it, it's one of the things I love is to is to be forced to learn and pay attention to and care about and do you know, make some phone calls on, on sports that I wouldn't care about otherwise. It keeps my sort of metabolism going. So I do think that the show has that effect and we even get into stuff like, you know, one of the things I like about the show is you get to do hockey when it calls for, you get to do soccer when it calls for, all this other stuff, and then you get to do, also do like these social issue stuff. Like we talk about Michael Sang and Richie Incognito and all these things that you get to have opinions on that you otherwise would not have a platform to talk about. And that's something that else that's gratifying. But anyway, the uh, the Yale the Yale hockey uh, the, the Yale hockey Illuminati. Yes, I respect I respect your power. And, and here we are on Monday and Friday. I will be in New Haven for Game One of Yale. Harvard, ECAC hockey first round playoff action. So it never ends. <laughs> it never ends. No, no. Enjoy, enjoy that ride, man. That's awesome. All right. Thank you so much for doing this again. You've been a great friend of the show. We're glad to finally get you back. Again, it's uh, Pablo Torre on Twitter, and everyone knows now you can find him on Around the Horn and ESPN. And in this thing they call ESPN the magazine, which I guess is <laughs> such a good guy to me, I have to try to hunt down and, and see what they write in there. <laughs> But, uh, Check it out. It's, it feels weird to show for an ESPN product, but it's worth it. All right. I, I swear, Steve. Thanks, buddy. All right. Take care. All right. I want to thank Pablo Torre for being on the podcast today. It's been a while. We've missed him. Uh, book club update today. This was supposed to be the start of Showtime Perlman Week month. Uh, but I want to give Ed Sherman one more week as well because we missed a week in February. Uh, so two books today to remind you of. Uh, we'll get Perlman on, or excuse me, Sherman on next week to talk about his Babe Ruth's Called Shot, The Myth and Mystery of Baseball's Greatest Home Run by Ed Sherman. 
It's about the home run we all know where Babe Ruth either did or didn't point uh, before he hit his home run. And there's all kinds of great insight into uh, what the answer to that baseball legend is. So Babe Ruth's called shot for the last week for the book called Book of the Month, The Myth and Mystery of Baseball's Greatest Home Run. The other book club book of the month, the one that we're going to start for March, is Jeff Perlman's new book, Showtime, Magic, Kareem Riley, and the Los Angeles Lakers Dynasty of the 1980s. Uh, he, of course, is the author of our one-time book club book of the month, book of the year, Sweetness, the Enigmatic Life of Walter Payton. By the time Jeff gets here, I hope he still feels like talking about the book. Dude's been everywhere, some really cool spots. He was on the Dan Patrick Show today, which is just a little bit bigger than our podcast. Uh, congratulations to Jeff on what's a fantastic book. It's everywhere starting today, March 4th. Available, full release, Showtime, Magic, Cream Riley, and the Los Angeles Lakers dynasty of the 1980s. We're going to take a break, and we're going to come back with the Buffalo Sabres. I want to say a Buffalo Sabres legend. That might be a little strong. But he's somewhere probably in between legend and whatever's before that. Uh, Certainly one of the all-time great Sabres in terms of getting down in front of pucks and blocking them. And the guy who, if he didn't come up with a staph infection the day before Game 7, there'd be a Stanley Cup banner at the First Niagara Center. So we're going to take a break and come back with Jay McKee. Our next guest is from Kingston, Ontario. Played junior hockey for the Niagara Thunder. After being selected by the Sabres in the first round of the NFL draft, he went on to play over 800 NHL hockey games. He's making his first appearance on the podcast today. A warm sportscaster's welcome to Jay McKee. How's it going, Jay? I'm doing good. How are you? Had to bring you into some Kingston rock and roll there. Perfect. <laughs> Never complained with that. Hey, I got some a lot of questions I want to ask you about some stuff that's current, but I can't imagine what it's like for you, but there's still days, and I, I'm 100% honest about this, where I wake up and the first thing for some reason that comes to mind is fucking staph infection. <laughs> yeah, I, it's, uh, honestly, it's something that will never leave me. I, uh, you know, I think about it myself. I think uh, I hear about it all the time from people. Um, just one of those unfortunate things that, that happened and something I'll live with and, and uh, definitely never forget. A lot like a, a, lot of, a couple of uh, sports fans. I always remember hearing about you watching the game with your hoodie on and like the strings pulled and you could barely see and I think that pretty much represents all of us. I, was there a chance, I don't know if I've ever known this, was, was there a chance you might be back if we had advanced? Or was was your if we, season if over? We, yeah, if we had advanced, um, there was a small chance. I, I had a pick line in my arm for about uh, for about ten days from that, so it wouldn't have been until probably middle or late of the uh, the final series. But 
there is a chance, a small one, that I could have been there. Yeah, those those bastards. They stole our banner. That that banner, that banner would be here right now, no doubt in my mind. If that doesn't happen, I, I wonder if there's ever been another time in hockey history where a team, every single time they won a game in the Eastern Conference Finals, they lost a defenseman. Like I, I just yeah, no, uh, it was it, yeah, that year for us is incredible. It just uh, the number of guys that kept falling, uh, getting injured. Uh, four of our starting six defensemen uh, by the time that I had gotten hurt, it was just you know I think any team that wins, there's got to be some things uh, that wins the Stanley Cup. There's got to be some things that go their way along the way. And for uh, for Carolina, it was fate. And uh, you know they went on to the final series, and Dwayne Rolison, uh, Edmonton's starting goalie, had gotten hurt just in the last series. So everything just seemed to come in place. Uh, they, they, well, in my opinion, they weren't they weren't the best team uh, that year that that, uh, that they ended up winning. So that uh, fate was on their side. My two greatest moments as a Sabres fan: one was the following year, Chris Jury's goal, seven seven point seven seconds left. The other one was walking out of the arena after Game Six against Carolina. Like yeah. I don't know if there's ever I've ever had a feeling as a Buffalo sports fan walking out of the arena that night in the way that that atrium can be when it's filled with people walking out thinking, all right, we're gonna we're gonna do this now, we're gonna win this. So. Yeah, uh, you know what? For me, I uh, I remember going home and and. You know, grabbing something easy, just saying we're, we're winning this. I mean, I had that feeling after that game. There was no question in my mind that not only the next game, I just felt we were winning the cup. Uh, and it was it was that night that uh, I went from having pain in my shin to my leg blowing up and almost had to get to the point where it had to be cut off uh, about eight hours later. So, um, you know, it's, it's uh, an ugly infection. Staff is something that you don't want to mess with, and, and it's, uh, it's a serious infection. And Unfortunately for me, it's not something that we could have caught sooner, only because uh, guys play in pain all the time, and I had, you know, minor pain in my shin uh, for well, both shins, not just the one that had the infection, but from blocking so many shots and banging around on the ice for uh, you know three full playoff series and a, a full NHL season, you're, you're kind of always playing with pain, and, and uh, you know there was no there's no sign that we could have realized it was something worse until uh, until it really hit uh, and got into my uh, my system the infection. So it's unfortunate, but I, I felt the same way you did. I thought we were winning for sure. Well, <laughs> one thing we're not doing anything anytime soon is winning, and you always seem to have some pretty spot-on sure. opinions on Twitter, and I, I kind of want to get, you know, you, your tenure ended that was it for you here. You know, one night yep. you play game six and, and Danny Breyer scores in overtime. The next day you have a staph infection and you never play a game yep. for the Sabres again. And then we all know what happened to the team the following summer, uh, July yep. 1st, 2007, which still haunts all of us to this day. And it's, I don't know, it, it one playoff series since, I think, maybe, maybe two, but... It really, it's 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 never recovered yeah. from from those the end of those two runs, and as you see, players who someone asked me the other day, is anyone left from those teams? And I think Drew Stafford is the only one left, and then Talinder now, who's back, kind of I think, yeah. right? So yeah, no, yeah, you're right on that. Milsey uh, Milsey's gone now, but he right. was one of the guys that was still around. Stafford wasn't around for uh, the the 2006 run. He might have been there the following year. Yeah, he was uh, there yeah, the I mean, following year because I remember. 
Uh, sorry, I just remember him being the one to jump in, and when uh, when uh, when Drury got hit on the boards yep. against Ottawa, I remember he was the one who who jumped in, and that was one of his first games. So, I guess you can count him at for the, you know at least the second run. But as, yep. you, as you see, all these players kind of kind of go on, and maybe there was some kind of uh, a debate internally on whether or not Miller should stay, or you should try to keep Miller, or Miller should go. What, yep. do you, what do you think about the direction the team is headed in right now and the way things have shaken out the last couple of days? Well, I think uh, regarding Miller, I, I think they had to trade him. I think, uh, you know, it, with him being unrestricted uh, this, this upcoming summer, uh, the team's obviously going through a rebuild. I think you need to – you can't risk losing the asset for nothing. And, and you know, I hate to call Brian, who's a good friend and a, and a – Great player and, and uh, guy for this uh, the city of Buffalo, uh, an asset. Um, he's obviously more than that. But in regards to, to the value he had, uh, they needed to trade him, needed to get something for him, uh, which they did. And uh, you know, hopefully St. Louis has a good run and they'll they'll turn that second or that that third round pick into a first. But um, you know, with, with that situation, he goes on, he gets an opportunity, a real good opportunity to win the Stanley Cup uh, in a very short time with St. Louis. If Ryan really wants to be in Buffalo, and if he chooses to go elsewhere, it's not because he doesn't love Buffalo. I know he does, but he has the option still to come back to Buffalo and sign there this summer. So what Buffalo gets is, is you know, possibly a couple first-round draft picks in that trade. They could get Ryan back again, and, and I'm not saying that's going to happen, but, um, you know, Ryan does see what they're doing here. I think the team, uh, obviously, they went through an unfortunate situation with uh, LaFontaine in the, in the last uh, few days here. But um, the team is definitely they, – they stockpiled a lot of first-round draft picks. They, they obviously get their own first-round pick every year. But Vanek, Palmaville, Gostad, a couple possibly with Miller and Ott trade. Um, you know, maybe Molson is gone at some point for, for a first or second rounder. Um, they're really stockpiling for the future in picks, and, and that's what you need to do. You need to – you need to get these uh, first-round draft picks. Uh, if you look at the uh, Sydney, uh, not Sydney Crosby, but the Pittsburgh Penguins, Chicago Blackhawks, they all went through some years of struggling. They drafted well, they drafted high, and then they built around those draft picks. So Buffalo, uh, it, it's tough right now. It's tough to watch. Uh, it's tough to be a player on the team because every player plays to win, but uh, they're certainly uh, going to have a bright future if they draft well and, and they obviously get the uh, the front office straightened out and, and moving in the right direction. Do you, okay, obviously this is a team with a lot of money to spend. The, regardless yep. of who the owner is, they have a lot of money they need to spend just to get to the salary floor last year or next year. Yep. Do you think that the way things have went down this week, if you're a player in some other market and you see the way things are happening in Buffalo, is, is this a place... And I've always been the first one to defend. I hate when people say, oh, nobody wants to play hockey in Buffalo because I'm under the belief that people love playing hockey in Buffalo. Yeah. There's so many hockey players who aren't from here, played here, and never left. So I never have bought into yeah. that. But in this specific case, if you look at what has happened in the last week or week and a half and the way things have happened in this organization since Pagula has taken over – is this a place yeah. that you want to come and bring your family and invest your time and, and and maybe play out the rest of your career? 
Well, there's certainly going to be some some damage control that uh, they've got to go through with the uh, the recent situation and, and Lafontaine uh, resigning. Um, he, he's obviously a guy that's well respected around the league. He's a guy that uh, would have been a good face to have on board, and and, and a guy that could get players. Uh, I mean, when players have uh, seven, eight, nine, ten different teams to choose from, uh, what is it that makes the player uh, you know choose team A or team B or C? Uh, I think uh, you know having a guy like Pat around here would have would have just added a little extra positivity to uh, you know with the respect he has around the league with what he's done. Um, I, I think it would have been a positive if he would have still been around. But um, you know it, it, the team has to move on. There's there's obviously damage control. Like I said, there's a lot of questions being asked. There's a lot of conspiracy theories as to, as to why it happened. But you know time heals wounds, and, and uh, I think that. Like I said, they've got a lot of first-round draft picks. They've got a guy in Murray who, who they feel can get the job done, a guy that Pat brought in and felt comfortable with. So um, I think this team, the future is going to be bright, uh, you know, regardless of the situation. It's just going to take some time to get past it. And, um, as for players playing in Buffalo and love living there, I know I, I, played, I played there for a long time. I love it there. I still, I still call it home. You know, I'd love to be a guy to, to, to be one of those people to reach out to the potential players or uh, there's other people in the organization that could do that. Um, you know, a lot of times that happens. Players that are unrestricted will talk to guys that they know have played there before and ask them about the city, the town, the organization. But, um, yeah, no, there's certainly some uh, some stuff they've got to get through here right now with, uh, with the situation in LaFontaine. But they'll, the team will move on from that and they'll get through it. And, and uh, you know, I, I believe they'll be successful in the uh, next uh, three or four years. You mentioned that a player has, you know, six, seven teams potentially to choose from, and there's all these different factors. And without being cynical at all, I would assume that the number one factor is term and money. After that, what are the other factors? Like, you went through this yourself. I mean, what were the factors throwing out? Let's just throw out term and money because it's a business and this is your life. So that I I say that with the least amount of cynicism, but what are the other? Oh, sure. Right. Yeah, no. Ter- term and money is 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 you know is definitely important because it's it's security for your life, for your family, for your future. That's 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 in any business, any sport. Right. Um, so that's obviously a factor. Um, but I, I think uh, you know you want to as a player and myself with St. Louis, uh, I, I wanted to know the direction they were going. I wanted to know obviously they they had a first round draft pick in Eric Johnson. My role and, and the way they expressed it was to come in and, and be a mentor for Eric, kind of. You know, be he was an offensive guy, kind of be his anchor like I was was with Brian Campbell when Brian was younger. Um, I knew John Davidson well. I trusted and respected John Davidson. Um, they were pushing very hard to get me there, probably harder than, than any other team, not only financially but just just in verbally. Uh, you know, they really liked uh, me as a player. They they made me feel, you know, just the words they said and the things they did uh, through our conversations. Uh, uh, I guess they made me feel wanted in a sense, not just monetarily, but uh, as a person and as a player. So, um, you know, that, that's where I'm talking about with, with Pat or whoever it is that the Sabres hopefully have on board. Um, John Davidson was that to me. He was the Pat LaFontaine that kind of egged me into, uh, um, you know, pushed me a little further into choosing St. Louis. But uh, there's a lot of variables. It's, it's the city. I mean, some players, depending on their age or their uh, marital status. Maybe some players want to play down south, and or in, in, a, in a bigger city like Chicago. It's, it's uh, a lot of different variables, but the bottom line is, is every player wants to win a Stanley Cup. And if a team 
is going in the right direction and has the right people on board. They see that uh, as long as they feel wanted. And, and obviously the, uh, the money is similar to what the other teams are offering. I think uh, um, a lot of different teams have chances at every player. Sportscasters talking with former Buffalo Sabre Jay McKee. Just a couple of minutes left. You can find Jay on Twitter at JMCKEE74. Uh, you mentioned uh, the, the direction and the right direction. And when you watch this team, what players do you see on the ice that you think will be a part of the team going in the right direction? Are, are there pieces out there that you can see being a part of a – I'm even, not even – even remotely worried about a Stanley Cup, but a playoff team, a, a team that can make a run like you guys did. Yeah, well, I think I think right now it, the team is obviously has a lot of young players, a lot of guys that are still developing. Um, I think, you know, uh, the real important part for this team to be successful is, is the way they draft. They're going to get some high draft picks, especially next year. Um, they're going to get their picks through, like I said, all those trades going right back to Gossett, Pombleville, Panic, uh, Miller, those are just additional first-round draft picks, and, and those are really going to be the guys. You know, it's going to take – it's not going to be next year. It's not going to be two years. It should, it, they should really have a four-, five-year plan to win the Stanley Cup, and that's when you draft these players. You develop them properly. You don't throw them right in the heat of the mix. You, you develop them to Rochester. You bring them up for some games, give them a taste of it. And then once these players develop into the strong first-round draft picks that, that they're supposed to be, that's when the team needs to bring in, you know, whether it be a Chris Drury type of player, a Danny Briere type of player, whoever it is that, that you need to fit. If you have a Chris Drury type of player already, if that's one of your guys, then you get someone else. But you got to bring in the right mold, have the right mixture of guys, the right different, the right type of personalities, the right type of, you know, on-ice work ethic. It's, uh, it's really going to take a lot. I mean, you don't uh, buy a Stanley Cup team. You can't go out and and do what Toronto tried to do for a lot of years and just spend the, you know, the max and, and, and buy a Stanley Cup team. You need to develop your players right, have the right people on board, and then bring in the guys around them, and that's what that's what the team needs to do. Two more real quick things, and I'll let you go. The very first season I saw Tyler Myers, and he won Rookie of the Year, I remember saying this guy has greatest saber of all time upside, and very few people yeah. come around that have that kind of upside. And since then... He's not come anywhere near there. He's got maybe the worst gaps I've ever seen. He has progressed yep. offensively under Ted Nolan, but his defense is still terrible, to be to be polite. When you watch yep. Tyler Myers, is, is this a kid that can be saved, or is this a guy that needs a new spot or a new chance, or what's wrong with Tyler Myers? Well, my opinion with Tyler Myers is, is he's got the skill, he's got the talent. Is he, is he playing like, like he can right now? No. Uh, but I, I think there's still um, an opportunity for him to be a great player. I think he was he had such a good year his first year that, that the expectations were, were raised to the roof for him. Uh, that never really gave him time to develop. When you have a young defenseman that's kind of put in the spotlight, they're going to have growing pains. It's not always the first year. Sometimes it's second. Sometimes it's the third. But Tyler was never given any time to, to struggle. You know what I mean? He had such a good first year, so fans just expected, and he got obviously a, a big contract to follow uh, things up after a couple of years, and and he's never had that time to go through the growing pains, which I'm hoping, fans are hoping, obviously the organization is hoping, maybe that's what he's going through now. They know how he can play. They know what he can do. I think if you get the right guys around him, uh, you know, uh, and for lack of a better term, a, a better team around him, 
uh, take a little bit of pressure off his shoulders, that'll that'll allow him to play a little bit better. So I'm not writing him off. I, I, he's a great kid. He's got a good work ethic. He's got all the skill. I mean, he's got the size that I'm jealous of. It's an easier game when you're a bigger guy. If you look at if you look at Zdeno Chara, Zdeno Chara is, is one of the top defensemen in the game. No forward wants to go up against him in the corner. Um, he wasn't that good his first few years. He struggled skating. He struggled with the puck. He was minus, I think, 26 or 27, one or two years. He, he, he took time to develop, and we haven't given Tyler Myers that time. So I'm, I'm not writing him off. I hope he's going to be a, a big part of this team, and I hope he uh, someday raises his family cup about eight feet in the air in, in Buffalo one night. All right, very last thing. We started with maybe the worst moment in your Sabres career. Let's end with what sticks out as the best. Uh, for me, yeah, that's tough. I, you know what? I, I was very fortunate to have 10 years uh, in, in a Buffalo Sabres uniform, and, and I cherish every year I had. I feel very fortunate for it. Um, you know, going to the Stanley Cup final was, was a thrill. 2006, that run was a thrill. It's hard to really pinpoint. Uh, even my first uh, first ever game was a thrill. My first goal. There's so many different things that were, were big for me. It's hard to uh, it's really pinpoint one. Well, thank you very much for doing this. I know you got other things going on, so I really appreciate it. Thank you. Not a problem. My pleasure. All right, I want to thank Pablo Torre for finally coming back on the podcast. I want to thank... Uh, Jay McKee for making his first appearance. And I want to wish the Yale Bulldogs best of luck defending their national championship, which starts this weekend with a best of three series against the Harvard Crimson. It's always nice if you get the chance to beat Harvard four times in one year and they have that <laughs> chance now. So uh, best of luck on the start of the title defense to Anth, who scored an absolute friggin' snipe on Friday. Saw that. Oh God! I think uh, Andrew Miller was the one who said to me, "The uh, Anthony Day goal to snipe ratio could not get any higher." <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, good luck to the boys, and congratulations to Gus Young, Kenny Agostino, and Jesse Root, who had senior night on Saturday. Yeah, with their parents there, right? Yeah, special yeah, cool. special group of seniors for sure. The first first three guys to be able to stand on the ice at senior night and as the uh, announcer lists their accomplishments be able to say national championship winners because of course that happened before that happened after senior night last year right so they're the first ones anyway uh one last thing for today oh before we get to that i should say you can find us on twitter uh, at sports underscore casters. You can email us to sportscasters at gmail.com. Quite a few emails and tweets this week about a bridge. Most people <laughs> most people tend to agree with us. Some people got too technical for me to understand, kind of saying one would be, one wouldn't be, whatever. Uh, close th- enough. Th- we're, we're close enough. You get the point. And you can find all our stuff on www.sports-casters.com, which really Don and I need to overhaul at some point and kind of update a little bit. Yeah, kind of looks like uh, it has since day one, right? <laughs> uh, and uh, 
Also, you can find us on Stitcher and iTunes and all the other third-party apps where you listen to podcasts. And if there is one out there that you use and can't listen to us, let us know and we'll try and make it happen. Absolutely. One last thing for me this week. Uh, it goes right back to hockey and the Sabres and kind of the end of an era. Uh, Ryan Miller's been a Sabre for 12 years, I believe is the number, taking me back to when I was about 20. Even at that point, I guess I'm I'm technically a grown-up, but you're still kind of a kid, and you kind of grow with the players, and you've got guys around like that. And I heard uh, Michael Pekka on the radio the other day, and I heard him talking, and he's maybe my all-time favorite Sabre, but never won the big one. So I, I think when I was listening to him, my thought was, man, I wish he won. I, I want to listen to this guy and – I want this guy to be like. Can I say something about Mike Pekka? Yeah, started the tradition of not touching the uh, conference championship trophy. That's right, first guy. I, yeah, I do remember. Oh, was he? I didn't know he started it, but, uh, but such a likable guy. But just ultimately didn't. I mean, he would be, he would still be like a, a god in my eyes if he won the Stanley Cup with the team. And uh, I'm sure a lot of that has to do with when I watched him. I was no like goal growing up. Yeah, no goal. Uh, that said, the Sabres trade away Miller, and I'm a 32-year-old guy this year, and there's not a guy like that on the team. And every guy on the team now is going to be younger than me from this point out. Uh, and I wonder how that's going to feel different if they went, if and when they ultimately do win the big prize. I was talking to my buddy about trading away Miller and Ott, like probably the two most likable guys left on the team. And he said... Now, what if the Sabres win the Cup next year? Like, I know you you root for the team, but who on there are you going to be really excited that they won a Cup? You know, like what? And I said, well, a you don't have to worry about that. The Sabres aren't winning a Cup next year. By the time they do, hopefully you you find a guy you like. And I just wonder, am I going to have a guy that I care about that much? Like Miller seemed like a Buffalo guy, and I'm sure that will happen. I'm sure that I'll watch uh, Gergensen's grow, and maybe he'll be my favorite saber ever because he'll be the one to finally win them a cup and he'll do uh all the cool things mike pekka did like be totally honest in the media and call out eric lindros and yarmer yager and all that fun stuff and but right now it just feels like i want this team to win but it's for me right now it's all about the the logo because i don't really know any of the players left on the team all right one last thing today and i'm going to do this as best as i can I mentioned off the top, uh, today is March 4th, 2013, and I got to start by saying it's a lot better than March 4th, 2012, and I'll admit that wholeheartedly that it's better, but it's one year officially since, I don't even think it's debatable, the low point in my life, and I remember waking up that day and being pretty sure I was going to have surgery that day, and within five minutes, a nurse came in and said, you haven't eaten anything since last night, right? And I said, no. And she said, okay, I think you're going to have surgery today. And then within 30 seconds after that, the surgeon came in and gave me a pat on the knee and said, we're going to take good care of you. I'm going to go down and get everything ready. And then within 45 seconds of that, two of his residents came in. Uh, saying, hey, I I think today is the day for surgery. Uh, Are you ready? And I said, well, the surgeon was just here, and he said, it's going to be in like an hour. 
and they looked at each other like, oh, shit, and ran the hell out of there because yeah. <laughs> apparently they had, had missed a message. And <laughs> within seconds, you the way it works is they just they wheel you out of this room where you've been in such pain and misery, and they, they wheel you into this other room where there's all these people who are also waiting uh, for surgery. And then I've always played a game. I've had five surgeries and uh, several other reasons that I've had to be put out. And I always play this game where I remember the anesthesiologist. So I always like to try to chat them up because they kind of come see you first to talk to you about – they ask you all kinds of questions so they know what they need to give you right. to make sure you're going to be out long enough. You know, they ask you, like, do you drink a lot? Do you do drugs? You know, things that might make you resistant to what they're going to give you because they don't want you to wake up. Right. Uh, So I messed with them. I remember – I do remember as a Russian guy. I can never tell you his name, but I remember he was – this particular guy was a Russian. And then the surgeon comes in and he tells you this is going to take four hours and this is what we're going to do. And it took somewhere between 8 and 12 hours. I don't exactly remember. And I remember waking up in the recovery room. And I just remember just telling the nurse over and over, it shouldn't hurt this bad. This is just... And I remember her just giving me just drugs after drugs after drugs. And her saying, is that helping? Is that helping? I was saying, no, no. And then her like running to get a doctor and the doctor coming over and saying like, well, I don't fucking know. Give him this, you know, and it just like then I was out again for a while. So he just must have put me out. And uh, I've been having a lot of trouble this week. And I guess not everyone has a forum to to get this out. And, and maybe some of you have turned it off and don't care. But I, <laughs> I think that maybe a lot of people who do listen do kind of find some kind of kinship with us. And maybe this is interesting to them for some reason. But. I've had a really hard week, uh, a lot of uh, looking back and, and thinking about – it's hard when you can think of the exact moment from one year ago and like, Don, can you remember exactly what you were doing on March 4th last year at this time? No. See, no. I can remember exactly – well, at this time a year ago, I was still in surgery, but – if it was five hours earlier, I can remember exact the exact moment, the exact way I feel. On Valentine's Day this year, I could remember the exact way I felt that day, the exact things that I did. On my sister-in-law's birthday, when everyone went to dinner, I, I could remember that. And that, that's been really hard for me, and I've been really struggling through that. And I think that the hardest thing is the silliest, and that's how much guilt I feel. Because I feel so much guilt for putting the people closest to me through that. And one of the greatest blessings in all of it was to have one of the most important people to me nowhere near me. And being able to kind of shield him from the reality of it. But everyone else was here and had to deal with it and had to see me like that and had to worry about me. And... My poor mom, who thought I was going in for four hours of surgery, I can't stop thinking, even right now, the the surgery was at 11 o'clock, so right now we'd be at the six-hour mark, six-and-a-half-hour mark, and I can't imagine what she was going through, wondering why it's two-and-a-half hours later and she hasn't heard anything, and how that must have felt 
on the seventh hour and the eighth hour as it just dragged on and on and on. And I don't know that there's a point to this or an end to this, but I'm better. I'm not where I want to be better. There was a plan, surgery, Remicade, remission, and unfortunately it went surgery, infection, long time before Remicade and still no signs of remission. And still every day there's several pills I need to take uh, to get through the day. Uh, But I'm better. I'm much better. I'm here. We're doing this. Last year we weren't. Uh, So I am looking at the positives, but sometimes you let the negatives uh, bring you down a little bit. And um, I guess to end this, I guess all I can say is, March 4th, 2014, you're a lot better than March 4th, 2013.